People who are not experienced criminals don't know how to stage a crime scene. They don't know what a real crime scene looks like. Martha, she left at 9.30. She was found under a tree in her own yard, bludgeoned with a six iron. This is just not a stranger-based crime. Something terrible occurred that evening in that house. Crimers, welcome to Break the Case. I'm Jen Coffendaffer and I'm your host. I have over 28 years of federal law enforcement investigative experience and I'm really excited to bring forth the cases you care about. We're going to be cussing and discussing these cases. It's all going to be fact-based and we're going to have some amazing guests and including the guest we have today. The guest today has over 25 years with the FBI. He was a premier profiler being one of the first FBI profilers alongside of John Douglas. He's written three books, one with Katherine Ramsland called Out of the Dark. He's also a forensic psychologist and has taught in the university level for over 20 years. So without further ado, got my headset on. Let's welcome Greg McCrary. I just can't really express, Greg, how happy I am to have you here. I know you're one of my mentors for sure. So tell us about you. What made you want to become an FBI profiler? Gee, well, I started with being an agent. Uh, I was out of college. I was working. wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I met an agent, and uh, that got me thinking about it. And he began to recruit me a little bit, and I thought, that sounds pretty cool, actually. And I wasn't sure what the FBI would want with me necessarily. But I figured, why not? You know, we'll fill out the application and see what happens. It was then, and I I think it is still the same now, that if I was accepted and went through the training and so forth, I'd owe them three years. So it was a three-year commitment. I could do anything. I thought I could do anything for three years. And if I didn't like it, I'd quit and do something else. So I applied, went through the process, the you know, all, all of that, and was offered the position of an agent, accepted. And then instead of quitting after three years, it was over 25 years. So uh, it turned into, uh, obviously, a career. Well, Greg, what I like about that is there's many people watching that might want to be an FBI agent and that might feel, oh, you know, I'm not qualified or, or I'll never be accepted. And I always want to, you know, tell stories like yours. Obviously, it's it's really hard to get into now, but just make that effort because you never know what the Bureau might hold for you. Tell us about how you transitioned then in years to come into profiling. Let me just make one other comment on that. I think our limitations are often self-limitations. We don't think we're good enough or we can't do that. And yeah, but I'm with you 100%. Go for it if you, you know, if you think you want it. And it was the same sort of thing with profiling, right? In other words, the Bureau was developing this stuff. I thought, this is very interesting. I, I thought it was really incredibly interesting. I think we all think the same way and that why do people do this stuff? I mean, what in the world is going on motivates people to do this? So, and of course, that's what the behavioral science and profiling was trying to address. Again, I said, hey, you know, I'd like to, you know, get involved in that. And I became a field coordinator. You know, I got to know John Douglas and, you know, Bob Ressler and Ken Lanning and Roy Hazelwood and all those guys down there. And the opportunity then opened up. uh, They had a position open up, so I applied for it, as did a number of other people. But I was 
fortunate enough to get the opportunity to go to Quantico and, and do this stuff full time. So that's basically what happened. Yeah, it's just amazing. And then after that, you went on to teach, right? Yeah, after I retired, I, I taught uh, in the forensic and legal psychology program. It's a graduate level program at Marymount University for about 20 years. I've, I've stepped away from that. My wife is constantly reminding me I'm an ultimate failure at retirement. You know, I'm just <laughs> flunking miserably. So I'm trying to cut down on my outside uh, commitments and things. But yeah, I taught there 20 years. And I've worked uh, with Park Dietz, a forensic psychiatrist, and his threat assessment group. We have over 200 of the Fortune 500 companies as full-time clients. We do workplace violence prevention, risk of violence predictions. We do the training and operational support in ongoing cases. And a number of those are full-time clients that we're involved with on a, on a routine basis. So it's certainly been, been busy since I've retired as well. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You're so busy as an agent. And then when you retire, you're almost more busy, but at least it's a little bit on your schedule, right? Let's get into the Sam Shepard case. And the reason I want to jump right into it is for our audience, this was the case that at least loosely the fugitive with Harrison Ford was fashioned after. That's kind of my realm that I remember the fugitive from. But I was so interested in seeing the details on the Sam Shepard case because this was a wealthy neurosurgeon, someone you wouldn't normally normally expect to possibly have bludgeoned to death his wife as she lay sleeping. So I'd love you, since you wrote the book on it and you did write a book on it, get into this case and tell us all about really from beginning to end how this yeah. case played out. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating case. It started in 1954 over the July 4th weekend in Bay Village, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland. Uh, Sam Shepard uh, was married to Maryland. Sam and his two brothers uh, ran a hospital in Bay Village, and they were highly respected surgeons and doctors and, uh, and, and so forth. And the night of July 3rd into the morning of the 4th, Maryland had been brutally bludgeoned to death in her, her bed. The story that Sam told the police initially was that he got called out on a medical emergency. He came home. They'd had another couple over for dinner that night. The couple went home, and Sam was napping on the daybed. Marilyn was asleep upstairs, and he heard her screaming. And he said he ran up and was confronted by this bushy-haired stranger who beat him into unconsciousness. And then he awoke to hear this stranger rummaging around downstairs, doing some kind of burglary, apparently, and he chased the guy down to the beach. They had a waterfront home on Lake Erie. And they had a second life or death struggle, and he was beaten into unconsciousness again. He regained consciousness, came up, found his wife, took her pulse at the neck, and no signs of life. And he called the next-door neighbor, interestingly. The neighbor called, the police called 911. There was one cop on duty, again, this is Bay Village, Ohio. He was at the fire station just finishing up the night shift, and they were all waiting to change shifts and go home when the call came in. So the officer and the ambulance folks went to the scene, and, and then, then it began at that point. So it was obviously a very high-level crime as far as public interest. I mean, in this sleepy, high-end kind of suburb of Ohio, a vicious crime like this was just so out of the ordinary. So it began that way, and it, it's a long story. I'll try to cut to the chase here. Sam was initially convicted on that case. His story kind of changed and there were different things that went on that led the jury to ultimately convict him. 
He spent 10 years in prison trying different appeals that all failed. And then he got a, a brash new attorney right out of law school, a guy named F. Lee Bailey, who no one had heard of at the time. And he tried a different appeal. He said he wasn't arguing the evidence. He said, Sam didn't get a fair trial. Too much publicity. Therefore, he didn't get a fair trial. Well, that worked. So he was given a second trial and acquitted in the second trial. And that's kind of where the legal end stayed for years. And then his son filed a, a wrongful conviction, lawsuit, malicious prosecution, accusing everybody involved, the DA, the police, Cleveland homicide that helped in the case with this wrongful conviction, malicious prosecution, etc. So that ended up opening this case again. And this was in the late 1990s. And I was contacted by the prosecutor's office in Ohio to come over and take a look at the case. And they were very honest. They said, look, if this thing was screwed up back in the day, we want to make it right. But if, the, on the other hand, the cops did it right, the prosecutors were right, we need to defend their integrity and the integrity of the investigation and prosecution. We really don't care how it plays out. We just want to get the story right. Would I come over and take a look and give my opinion on what they were dealing with? And this was interesting because this was sort of like a cold case homicide investigation in the case of the civil litigation. So it involved the exhumation of Marilyn Shepard and DNA testing and, and all of this more contemporary forensic science being brought to bear on this case back from the 1950s. What the plaintiff, what his son and their attorneys thought is that they had solved the case through DNA. And they were blaming now a guy named Richard Eberling, who was a handyman, who had worked for the Shepherds, actually worked for not only Sam and Marilyn, but for the other brothers as well. What they had thought they had discovered was Everling's DNA at the crime scene. She was bludgeoned, so there's a lot of cast-off blood. She'd been hit with some blunt object, so there was blood on the walls and the doors behind the victim. And one splotch of blood, they thought, was a match for Everling's DNA. So that became the basis of their lawsuit, and that was their hanging their hat on that uh, DNA. So all this DNA evidence is it's being analyzed both by the plaintiff attorney and by the state and the prosecutors. Everybody wants to get it right. What the prosecutors found, what we found looking at their analysis, the analysis done by the plaintiff, is that it was not proper. They had leapfrogged right into this DNA, looking at alleles and things, but they said Eberling was in there, but they excluded Sam. So we looked at that and discovered that they had really leapfrogged ahead. They'd overlooked basic serology. And what we found was the blood that they were using was type O, but Eberling's blood was type A. So it couldn't possibly be Everling's blood. As a matter of fact, Marilyn Shepard's blood was typo, probably her blood on the door, but definitely not Everling's. Interestingly, they had excluded Sam Shepard because his type was type A as well, but they never bothered to check Everling's blood type. We figured they must have an answer for this. They wouldn't just get up there and testify to this, but their expert did that this was Everling's blood and why they thought that and all that. So when the prosecutor cross-examined him, you know, he got up there and turned him around from a plaintiff expert to a defense expert in about a minute and a half because he got right into it, said, you excluded Sam Shepard because his blood type was A. Couldn't be his blood on the door. Correct. And 
Richard Eberling's blood type was also type A, was it not? And you see the deer in the headlights look, and he said, well, I don't know. Do you mean to tell me you didn't do basic serology work? Well, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And we turned him around, basically getting him to agree, which he would have to, with any integrity at all, that if that's type O blood, it couldn't be coming from a type A person. So your whole case really went out the window as far as the forensics. My analysis on that was the report I wrote, I classified this as a staged domestic homicide. And the reasons for the staging were pretty clear. For example, Maryland was brutally beaten to death. Sam had a little black eye, and that was the extent of his injury. Initially, his brother said his neck was broken, but his neck was not broken. And he had these two life and death struggles with this killer. And if the killer was Eberling, who Sam knew, if Eberling let Sam survive, he could easily identify him. So why leave leave him alive? I mean, it just made no sense. And then there's the rummaging of the house. Drawers are pulled out and things are rummaged around. But it's also maybe a potential drug crime that Sam's doctor bag, black bag, was on its side. And he testified that ampules of morphine were, were missing. So it was like a drug crime. But, you know, as you know, in stage crimes, people who are not experienced criminals don't know how to stage a crime scene. They don't know what a real crime scene looks like. They think they know from what they think they know is from reading books and watching movies and stuff. And so, I mean, what was it? Was it a sex crime? Because Marilyn had her top of her pajamas pulled up, her breasts exposed, and her legs were spread and so forth, but not sexually assaulted. She wasn't sexually assaulted at all. Nothing of value was taken from the house, so no real burglary. And the idea that a drug druggie would be discerning and know the difference between morphine ampules and other ampules and not just take the whole bag. It has syringes and everything in it. I mean, just why not take the whole thing? The whole thing just didn't make any sense to me at all. So I, I classified it as, in my opinion, a staged domestic. Now, to get into the legal thing just a bit, they wouldn't let me, improperly so, I think, wouldn't let me testify that it was a staged domestic homicide, I'd be invading the province of the jury. That's They have to be the fact finders on this. So what I was allowed to testify to was what staging is, why an offender stages a crime scene, what are the crime scene indicators of staging. I did all of that. Then the prosecutor came in and said, well, would this be staging and would that be? And he went through the facts of the crime. And then that was the closing argument, that it couldn't be anything other than a staged domestic Homicide is the only thing that made sense, and the jury jury concurred. Matter of fact, two of the juries were interviewed later, and they were so convinced of Sam's guilt, they said, if this was a criminal trial, we'd give him the death penalty. That's how sure they were of what happened. So that's a quick overview of the, you know, of the case and how it, how it played out. Well, I think it's really interesting because you touched on so many things that right now are affecting the cases that are, you know, the media realm, like the Idaho Four murders and the Delphi murders, those cases that really salaciously are being talked about in social media and mainstream media. And so I just think it's very interesting to see how the Sam Shepard case also had that component. And in fact, that component led to that case being overturned. But in that case, it seems like that the media had sort of convicted him is what you're saying. And that's what they tried to use. Was that really true? Or was that just the big spin of the defense? There was a lot of media coverage. I wouldn't say that that it 
any more than there is in a case today. I mean, the cases you're just talking about. I mean, think of the Idaho case. How much press has there been? In an any high-profile case, there's a lot of media coverage. And, you know, whether that was the right decision or not, I mean, we could, we could argue. But that's what overturned the case. And Sam, just, just to follow up, got his medical license back once he was acquitted. But then he went on to actually kill a patient, severed an artery, didn't tell anyone, put the woman into post-operative care. She bled to death. So he had his license revoked. He really became a drug addict, an alcoholic. Became a professional wrestler for a while, known as Killer <laughs> Shepherd. Finally, uh, in his own tragedy, died shortly after that due to drug and alcohol abuse. So the whole thing's a big tragedy at, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, from beginning to end. So tell us, why did he kill her? He killed her because Sam was a philanderer. He was a big womanizer. It's the whole victimology thing, right? How important victimology is. And so who wanted her dead? And then when we did a deep dive in that, which I was most in interested in, we found, for example, in that spring, well, he'd been carrying on a, a long-term affair with a nurse, and then a lot of short-term affairs as well, but a long-term affair with a nurse. She finally woke, woke up and realized he wasn't going to leave his wife, and she said, all right, I'm done, and she left Ohio, moved to California. So there was a physician's conference in, in California in March of that year. Sam went out with Marilyn to the conference, but they didn't stay together. Sam hooked up with his girlfriend, and his wife stayed with another physician and his family. And Sam was squiring his girlfriend around with all these other physicians and ignoring his wife. I mean, it was horribly awkward for everybody, humiliating for Marilyn. Obviously, Sam, this narcissistic kind of guy, could care less. That was kind of the, you know, the, the breaking point, we think. And matter of fact, we had some letters recovered back in the day where Marilyn is threatening to divorce him, ruin him financially, doing the whole thing. His brothers are saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I think that's exactly what we reached the breaking point that she was going to leave him and divorce him and ruin him and, and all of that. You know, he wasn't going to let that happen. And I think that was really the motive. You know, in a fit of anger, he bludgeoned her to, to death and then tried to stage the scene, you know, to make it look like these other, other crimes. So I think the motive w was there as well. And that all came out during the trial. So I think the jury got the, the big picture as to, as to what, was, what was going on and what the motive probably was. Well, this leads us straight into uh, the next case I really want to talk to you about, and that is Martha Moxley. Martha Moxley was a 15-year-old girl. Her parents, her family, had recently moved from California into Greenwich, Connecticut, and they were very well off. And she lived in a neighborhood, actually, where the Skulkel lives. Now, Skulkels are the boys that ended up being looked at as possible subjects in the murder of Martha Moxley. What happened was she became good friends with these young boys. One, Mike, was 15. There were seven kids in the Skulkel family, and the mother had died of cancer and so the father was sort of left to try to corral all these children and work a high-pressure job. And so they had a lot of freedom and, in any event, kind of ran the neighborhood. Martha was last seen on October 30th, right before Halloween. Sadly, at about 9.30, she was with the Skokel brothers. And Tommy, the older brother, had gone off apparently to see a movie, a Monty Python movie. But Michael, it would later be found, did not go. And in fact, when he was interviewed by 
a private investigator hired by his father, he said that he last saw Martha that evening when he snuck over after she had left and gone up to her room, went up a tree, watched her and masturbated, which, of course, couldn't be true because she never made it home after she left at 930. She was found under a tree in her own yard, bludgeoned with a six iron Legend so hard about the face, she was completely unrecognizable, and the shaft and the club face disconnected in the in the fervor. Mike was later charged. That conviction was upheld, but ultimately it was reversed. That happened in 2018 or 19. Anyway, now the reason this is in the news is he has decided, just like Sam Shepard's family did. He has decided to go back and say, listen, I was wrongly convicted. I spent 11 years in prison and I want some money for that. So walk us through just the details, you know, because this was in your era. Interestingly, I was living in Greenwich at the time. I actually had just recently been married and we moved into an apartment, an old apartment building that was on Greenwich Harbor. And we looked right across the harbor to Belhaven, which is where they lived and where the murder occurred. Well, Greenwich itself is a very Tony town, very upscale, big money town. And Belhaven is among the wealthiest communities within Greenwich itself. So again, very unusual for a murder like this to occur. But again, you go to victimology, you know, the idea that, again, some stranger would be able to get into Belhaven to begin with is is remote because they had their own security and it was a, a you know gated community and all of that. But then you look at the weapon, you talk about the golf club, and that was traced back, as I understand it, to the boy's mother or to right. that family. You know, what, what are we talking about? I mean, some stranger came in and got mom's golf club and bludgeoned this girl to death? You know, I don't think so. I mean, if you just Look at, you know, look at what was going on. It's my understanding the boys were somewhat troubled, somewhat, you know, more than free spirits and and maybe getting away with it to to a certain degree simply because of who they were. It's, It's like other cases where the Greenwich PD hadn't investigated a murder in 30 years or more probably and didn't ask for any outside help. This is where professional pride can get in the way, whether it was deferential treatment initially or just not knowing how to conduct, you know, a homicide investigation. It it just ended up languishing for years, as you said, before it finally got around to taking a hard look at uh, Michael and eventually, you know, eventually convicting him. Yeah, and now we'll see how it plays out. Again, uh, be careful what you ask for. If he wants this to be retried, we'll have to see how it it plays out, you know, in the long run. But he, you know, he could be sorry that he's bringing this back up at this point. I'll be interested to see how that plays out. I think, Greg, they need to hire you uh, to reconstruct (laughs) the whole thing because from the point of view of really the facts that played out. And again, that case was overturned, I believe, related to a possible bad defense work. That's why it was finally overturned. They said, listen, the defense really didn't bring up a possible alibi, even though the information and all of the facts showed that he didn't have that alibi. Still, the defense should have brought that person forward, even though they had other information to go against that individual. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how it got turned over, Greg. And unfortunately, I guess for the family, certainly the Moxley family is devastated because now they're not going to retry it. All these years have gone by. Greg, do you have the view that as 
These cases age, they become much more difficult to try. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, witnesses disappear or they die. I mean, we're talking about that case back in, I think, 75, right? Well, here we are decades later. You know, witnesses, memories fade and witnesses disappear, they die. It does become more difficult in many respects in that regard. Sometimes it cuts the other way where new testing can be done, you know, the DNA mm -hmm. testing when it's done correctly can be, you know, very probative and very decisive about, you know, who was at the scene and who wasn't. But that's another, you know, another issue. And let me just touch on that briefly, because we're getting so good at detecting DNA, we have to be careful to distinguish between is it information or is it evidence. And very briefly, I'm familiar with a case out in California where a guy was brutally murdered, a wealthy guy in his home, clipped the fingernails, typical deal, did DNA on the fingernails, got a hit of a stranger or a guy who was known, had a long criminal history, uh, burglaries and B&Es and this stuff, and they scooped him up. He had no alibi. They locked him up because his DNA was on the fingernails of the deceased. Okay. But he got a female defense attorney who looked at the big picture and said, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, the guy had a long criminal history, but the crime involved a home invasion. His ex-wife was there. The victim's ex-wife was there. She was bound and gagged. They both were. He suffocated because they put the tape, tape over the nose and mouth. She survived to talk about this was young gangbanger kind of guys in black gear and guns and a home invasion. They ransacked the place and did this. Well, the guy whose DNA was the town drunk and an alcoholic, and his B&Es were busting out liquor store windows and grabbing bottles of Muscatel and, you know, just not a home invasion guy in ninja gear and weapons and all this. So they went to work. She had an ex-homicide detective as her investigator. They went to work to try to figure out what was going on. And what they found that this guy had a very good alibi. He was passed out drunk in the hospital that night. So he could not possibly have committed this murder. He had an airtight alibi. The question then is how did his DNA get on the deceased's fingernails? And the answer is that the paramedic team that scooped this drunk guy off the street put a pulse oximeter on his finger. They then went mm -hmm. to the murder scene and put that same pulse oximeter on the deceased, transferring the drunk's DNA onto the deceased's fingernail, secondary transfer. And that's the issue now. We're so discerning in picking up DNA. It, it can be very probative, but we've got to really be careful about over-interpreting this and making sure we know where it came from. I mean, if it's like skin cells and trace DNA, man, our DNA is everywhere. If it's coming from blood or semen, well, that's that's really different. I mean, we just don't leave that stuff laying around. But our skin cells, we're sloughing off, you know, 50 million cells a day and, you know, they could get on things. So Yeah, I think you bring up such a great point uh, because it's the totality of an investigation always. You can't just take DNA and say, this is why. You have to look at everything and all the other clues that show that full picture. And that is such a great example of somebody that just didn't fit anything. So I think it's really important. A lot of people do want to just say DNA, we know, but it, it really comes down to is the profile right? 
Yeah, exactly. It's the totality of the circumstances always. And it's like, you know, and the same thing, let's say with a polygraph. Well, okay, I mean, if I got five pieces of evidence pointing this way and a polygraph points that way, I'm probably still going with the five pieces of evidence. If the polygraph also points that way, well, that's just one more, more piece of it. But you just have to be careful and look at the totality and don't hang your hat on one, on any, any one thing. You just... You just have to look at the big picture. Let me ask you, what what would lend itself to somebody if it was the 17-year-old, if it was the 15-year-old, or whoever committed this crime of Martha Moxley? What would lead to such rage? We know we have her diaries. So we know that Tommy, the older brother, had made multiple sexual advances, trying, I mm -hmm. think she, her quote was, trying to get to first base and trying to get to second base. And, and we know she had somewhat of a familiar relationship with him, although they weren't dating. She actually liked somebody else, at least from the diaries, it would seem. And we also know that supposedly Michael was jealous of that. We know by his own statements that he was fixated on her. I guess a lot of the boys were. She was the beautiful blonde that came into the neighborhood and kind of took all these boys by storm. Walk us through, what does it take for somebody, a 15-year-old, to get to that state of rage? Could very well be, because we know at that stage of young teenagers, their emotions are certainly not under control. So a friend of mine said, you know, they're, they're like hormones and blue jeans, right? He was fixated on her. I mean, he, he admitted he'd be looking in her window and masturbating the fantasies about her. So I could certainly see her rejecting his advances that evening, him not taking that well, to, to put it lightly, and having that sort, it's that sort of narcissistic rage where he feels entitled to this, and when he's denied, it explodes into this, this sort of rage, and then, you know, gets this weapon and just has at her for having the audacity to, you know, to reject him, in, you know, in some way. So playing out sort of the timeline of that, if he made this advance, he would have had to gone back, say, to his, you know, the house or the garage where these golf clubs yeah. were, and then track her down after? Yeah, I mean, again, it depended on where that initial confrontation may have occurred. And again, I don't know where the golf clubs were or whatever, but the chance of somebody else getting mom's golf club is, you know, is remote. Yeah, whether it was a quick grab out of the garage or wherever he got it and, um, you know, may well have had a, apparently did have a second, you know, confrontation with her you know, at some point, unless he just happened to have that golf club in his hand for some reason before. I mean, I, you know, I don't know, obviously. But it'd be that sort of explosive rage when, you know, he was turned down. Whether he'd been drinking, we know that Michael had drinking problems. That's a disinhibitor, as we know, and that can exacerbate emotional outbursts and rages and, and, and so forth. So probably some combination of those things, uh, you know, assuming that's, you know, that's what occurred. And again, the jury heard a lot of the evidence, the initial jury, and they, uh, they of course, convicted him on that. Could it have been a situation where they had an argument even earlier in that evening and sure. it could fester, if you will, and then he would have came after her? So not necessarily one episode, but two? Absolutely. Yeah. No, it could absolutely be. And, and it could be, you know, something that maybe occurred over a period of days, you know, that conflict on and off over days. And maybe that night it was a couple of different incidents. And, you know, she may have just told him in no uncertain terms, you know. I think of it as like reaching critical mass. It builds up, it builds up, it builds up, and then there's an explosion. And I think that's the, the type of thing that we're seeing here, this unbridled rage. Well, this 
brings us perfectly into a segue into John Benet Ramsey. The John Benet Ramsey case, of course, mm-hmm. is so well known. I know you were involved in it. John Benet Ramsey, for those of you who may not remember, was a little girl that died in December of 1996. She was found in the basement of her home with a homemade of garrote, a very small garrote made of kind of some twine string. And she was also bludgeoned severely. Her cranium was was cracked. When the report first came in, it was about five in the morning. Patsy Ramsey, who was the mother of John Benet Ramsey, made a 911 call. Pretty hysterical, a little bit all over the place. She said she found a ransom note. And this ransom note was three pages long. It was written on stationery from Patsy Ramsey's desk. There was a practice note that was also written. There were details in that note that included the Christmas bonus that her husband, John Ramsey, had received. When police arrived, they treated this as a kidnapping. What does that mean? They did not preserve that crime scene at all. There were people coming in and out. The Ramseys not only called 911, they called everyone and their dog to come over. And so they had a house full of people kind of Going in and out, even though the call came in at five and the house was searched, John Bonet was not found until late that later that afternoon. I believe it was around one o'clock, and found by John Ramsey in a very secluded room in the basement that was very difficult to get to. Let's break this down a little bit. Was this an inside job like Sam Shepard, or was yeah. this a stranger pedophile? that happened to be in the neighborhood on Christmas Eve and break into this luxury home? Yeah, obviously those are the, you know, the core issues and the core questions. I was initially contacted by John Ramsey's defense team, and they wanted to hire me to work with them. I turned it down. This is about only about five days, into, not even a week into it. I didn't know anything about the case other than what was in the media, but everything to me looked like an inside job of some sort. The whole note thing and the ransom thing and the body and the house, and it was just... I just got bad vibes about, you know, getting involved with the family at that at that point, you know. So I, I, I turned that down. Then once I media heard that I turned that down, then they kept going, well, what do, you, what do you think about this? So I did some media stuff back in the day. But again, it's victimology. It's looking at the totality of the circumstances. You know, people go after kids for two reasons, right? Money or sex, basically, right? They abduct kids or you know, abuse them sexually or, you know, kidnap them for money basically is, you know, what what you're dealing with. This seemed to be like a hybrid thing, like this note. The note to me is, you know, you talk about behavioral analysis and in all this, it was really very strange. Things in there like the misspelling of words like possession and business in that, in that kind of first paragraph. But then later, correctly spelling attache. So this to me looked like intentional misspelling to try and create this idea this is a foreign group of some some sort. And then it went from kind of formal at the beginning. It said, Mr. Ramsey, you know, we are a small foreign faction, something like that. And then later, it's John. John this and John that. And, and uh, John, uh, use your good common sense or southern common sense. So how would they know John's from Atlanta? Plus, spending the time. I mean, if someone came in that house to kidnap that victim, they, they wouldn't spend time writing a practice note and a note, and then not take the victim. I mean, if you're abducting the kid for money, even if she's dead, you take her. But then there has to be the time to kill this poor child. And then, as you pointed out, put the body 
in a room inside a room that the police didn't find when they searched for it. But then when they asked the family's help to search, you know, John went down and found the body and then carried it upstairs. So his DNA or any other secondary DNA he has is now transferred onto that, that body. So you've got a smaller PD that hadn't really worked a real homicide in a long time. And in the case of Boulder PD, they turned down offers of outside help from the State Police Bureau of Criminal Investigation, the FBI. Ron Walker was a friend of mine. He's in charge of the violent crime squad in Denver at the time. And he was on scene offering all the FBI help they needed. Nope. We, we got this. We're doing it ourselves. And, and of course, you know, as you said, I mean, the problem was, let's assume it's a kidnapping. Well, the house is a crime scene right away because the kidnapping occurred there. So you seal the house, you don't let other people in, you know, you do. But no, they didn't, you know, they didn't do that. You know, a lot of mistakes early on in the, uh, in the case. And the other thing, too, is, is she was found in her favorite pink nightgown, her favorite nightgown, which the housekeeper or maid said, had been in the dryer, had been in the laundry. So now we have to imagine this killer knowing that that's her favorite pink nightgown, knowing that it's in the laundry, running around in this house that they don't belong in, getting it out of the laundry, kind of redressing this girl in, in her favorite pink nightgown. I mean, this is just not a stranger-based crime. I mean, it just has all the indications, in my opinion, of being some kind of an inside job that something terrible occurred that evening in that house. And this is an attempt at, like, staging is, you know, a foreign faction doing an abduction, but there wasn't an abduction. And, and as you indicated, everything we can source comes from the house. You know, the pad and the pen and, you know, the garage was from a paintbrush out of Patsy's, you know, material. So everything is from the house. So where are you going to look for the killer? I'd, I'd start looking in the house myself. And then now there's the DNA issue that's mm -hmm. come up recently. So we've got some unknown male DNA. But now I'm back to the thing we just talked about is, is it evidence or is it information? I mean, you can go to the store and buy underwear all wrapped in plastic bags, send it to the lab, and they're going to find DNA on that underwear from the store, whether it's from the guys that packaged it or whatever. So again, where did that DNA come from? I don't know. You know, it, it, it's a question that needs to be answered, obviously. And those who want it to be a stranger say, well, there's your proof. But not until we get it identified, you know, do we know do we know for sure what what it is? And will it end up being two different DNAs? Right, there's DNA yeah. that were was found under the fingernails. I can think of so many scenarios for that, and then the DNA that was actually in panties that I believe were from a new package. I believe going to get gifted to a cousin or something like that. I think they were even off sized. But the interesting thing about that, to your point. Now the killer has to know where the package is. The pajamas, which we know she had a, a bedwetting issue. Yes. And that's why the maid said, you know, that, that her pajamas were in the dryer because she had had mm -hmm. an incident and the, and the maid had taken care of that. So, so let me ask you this. And I think this is the biggest thing. Actually, we saw this in a recent case, the Murdoch case. Alex Murdoch was convicted of literally shooting the face of his son, of his son at close range with yeah. a shotgun blowing his head off. Yeah. And then with his wife taking another weapon, though, a long gun, a rifle. And as she was crawling away from the scene, he'd already 
shot her and hurt her, shot her down. I want to get your opinion. Doesn't that play into it? The idea if you're going to get away with something like this to make it so horrific that everyone says there is no way a dad and a husband could possibly do that to this little girl. Have you seen that happen? Do you believe that is a philosophy? Sure. I mean, that's certainly a possibility that, that we have to consider that, that if you're staging it, you want to make it, you want to stage it as though you couldn't possibly have done it. The whole idea of staging is to misdirect the investigation away from whoever the real killer is. So you want to make it look like something that would be so different than anything anyone could think of you doing or could reasonably consider. And that, that's the whole purpose of staging. So yeah, yeah, that, that certainly could be the, uh, be, you know, be the case. It was very interesting that pineapple was found, or I should say, they said it was a fruit that was yellow and that they believed was pineapple. It was found in the contents of her stomach. And that that lent itself to believe that she actually got up and something happened imminently within the time frame she ate. Mm -hmm. I just have really struggled with thinking of a scenario on Christmas Eve that could have led to such a brutal attack. And the fact that her cranium was just shattered. I mean, I've seen the picture. There's a big hole in it. And mm. the force that I know that takes to do that. And then the whole garroted situation. I mean, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know for sure. But then again, we come back to where did this stuff come from? I mean, it's it's from the house, right? The, the garage, the paintbrush, all of that stuff. So it isn't as you've got some stranger who comes in who has this fetish about using a garrote and brings all the equipment with them to act out on this fetish, much less do it in the house. I mean, it's such a high-risk crime for a, a stranger to come in the house and spend that amount of time writing the note, going getting the nightgown out of the washer and dryer, getting the underwear, redressing the victim, doing all of this stuff. You know, it's just bizarre to me to think of a, you know, a stranger doing, you know, doing that. And again, I think we're back thinking about the totality of the circumstances. And the notion of the house too. This wasn't your average three bedroom, two bath living room. Some people would call it a mansion, you know, millions and millions. I think I saw it's on the market now for many millions of dollars. How unusual would it be for a stranger to enter and be able to take that child to that room? Well, that's the other part. I mean, it's a room within a room, as I understand it. The police didn't find it uh, when they searched the home, but John went right, apparently went right down to it. Seems odd that he would, you know, get, get, get right to it and find the body right, you know, right away. And then, of course, the mistake of picking her up and carrying her upstairs, and then, you know, that contaminates the crime scene totally. So there's a multitude of investigative problems right there as well. So I saw recently an interview, and this interview was conducted quite a while ago. Elizabeth Vargas conducted it of the female investigator that was on scene, that was actually with that family the whole time while everybody's sort of running down leads and things. And mm -hmm. what she said, which I found very interesting, was in the ransom note, there was a time given you know, for the, everything to happen, right? If it doesn't happen by, I think it said 10 o'clock, if it doesn't happen by this time, you know, say goodbye to your daughter or words to that mm. effect. But at that time, she noted in her notes that John was opening mail. He was on the phone, you know, I think making yeah. arrangements for a flight, you know, Patsy's entertaining people. In other words, the urgency of that time wasn't there. 
Yeah, that's that's very very telling as well. And I, I do recall that that they were making flight arrangements. I think to go down to Atlanta and you know doing you know d- doing this. I mean, wait a minute, your daughter's missing. She's been kidnapped, and and you're making flight arrangements and you know entertaining people. And you know, I mean, you know, no, there's just it's so conflicted. And yeah, I think that's all big reason to be concerned about, you know, what what actually was going on. I mean, was they didn't seem to be concerned about the kidnapping or, you know, making deadlines or getting money or, you know, getting whatever, 118000 I think it was. Odd figure, right? I mean, a, really an <laughs> odd figure, $118,000. I mean, why not millions? I mean, the last major kidnapping I worked with the Bureau was the Sidney Riso kidnapping president of Exxon International. They asked $18.5 million, you know, for him. So 118000 I mean, you know, again, and that was apparently what his bonus was that, that year. So again, another one of these strange coincidences that seems to point to somebody familiar with this or that figure was on their mind for, you know, for some reason. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, just all those details that we've talked about, as you may know, the grand jury actually indicted Patsy Ramsey and John Ramsey in about three years after the crime. And they indicted them for child abuse leading to death. Those were the exact and precise charges. But, and this is something I've never seen. I want to know if you've ever seen it. I have never seen the assistant DA who was handling the case present this case for an indictment to the grand jury because we know not all cases are presented. But the prosecutor, the main DA in charge of all, you know, he said, I'm not signing off on it and dismissed the grand jury. I've never seen that. Have you ever seen that? No, I've never, never seen that. I mean, they go with the grand jury. That's how the system works, right? I mean, you present the evidence to the grand jury. They vote. They say there's probable cause that this occurred and there's enough probable cause that it should go to trial. And that's the job of the prosecutor rather than to back off after the grand jury has, has made its findings. I mean, yeah, no, I've never, never experienced that in my my career where a grand jury has returned a true bill after seeing the evidence and then the prosecutor folds. Really just makes the process sort of null and void. If you're going to spend, yeah, what's the point? If you're going to spend a year presenting all the case and the facts, then, you know, it really makes them seem null and void. But as we see now, they actually are reinvestigating. And they're looking at, I believe it was a million documents I read. I'm not sure that figure was right. But nevertheless, mounds of documentation, interviews, pages and pages of information. And they're revisiting it. And recently, John Ramsey came out and said, this is a big setback. It's a setback to, you know, moving forward on this DNA. I thought that was very interesting for somebody wanting to seek. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, yeah, no, you want everything reinvestigated. You want, you know, you want to get the story right, unless you have a reason to not want to get the story right. Yeah, I think you would welcome, I mean, he certainly welcomed the DNA that pointed in some other direction, but now he seems skittish about looking in other areas, you know, as well. So, yeah, no, if you got nothing to hide, go ahead, please investigate as thoroughly as you can. We want to get, get the story right at the end of the day. So, yeah, it's interesting for sure. Well, Greg, I, f- I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and I just so much appreciate you taking this time to give an expertise that 
very few really have. And I thank you. And, and I got to say, that's the whole reason that I wanted to start this platform is really getting individuals just like you that have this wealth of knowledge. You're just a gold mine. And I just can't thank you enough for lending your lending your time, lending your expertise, lending your words of wisdom. Oh, thank you. No, I'm happy to do it. Happy to have the opportunity. So good luck. Thank you so much. And best to you. I'm sure we'll meet again soon. We'll be in touch for sure. Thanks for joining us on Break the Case. And until next time, may justice be served.